Welcome back to the Mulligan Brothers podcast. I am your host, Jordan Mulligan, and this is the most motivational podcast in the world. Today's guest is a former commando, and he may be recognized from TV shows with Will Smith, some of his unbelievable adventures from volcanoes to the sea to much, much more. Aldo Kane has some amazing stories, and this episode was such a fantastic dive into his life and his adventures. Lessons from the Edge is a book that Aldo wrote um, in lockdown, and it was something that inspired me massively, and I, I gained so much entertainment out of the book as well. Whilst the lessons in this book were um, treacherous and entertaining, the inspiration and motivation behind them as well was amazing. And that is what we talk about today. Today's podcast was made possible at mulliganbrothers.com, where you can now get the new journal and ready for 2023. So many people have been giving us amazing feedback from the journal, and this is a no bullshit approach to journaling. It doesn't need to be overcomplicated. This is exactly how I've journaled for the last seven years. It gave me much success and organization in my life. And this is how I explain to other people how they should do it as well. All the profits from the website, as always, go back into creating this content. Our mission is to inspire change through our content and through our films. And you guys have helped make that possible. We cannot thank you guys enough. So, yeah, thank you again. But it has been amazing, the support we received. And we're so thankful as well that you guys are getting stuff from the products as well. We wanted to make sure that we are delivering high quality products and that you guys feel that you are still getting inspiration even from the products that we create. So thank you so much to everybody. This episode for me was such a fun project to shoot. You can see the main project on Mulligan Rivers YouTube, but the conversations that we had with Aldo were really interesting. Some of the stories we go from volcanoes to storms to the cartel and the stories that he has and I'm sure this was just a fraction of them are extremely fun and entertaining to listen to uh, but also hold many lessons so I'm going to stop waffling let's jump into this episode with Aldo Kane. So just for people who don't know just introduce yourself uh, who you are and what you do. Uh, my name is Aldo Kane. I'm a former Royal Marine commando and I now run a company operating in extreme remote and hostile locations around the world. Yeah, so one of the things that I was nervous about coming here is that you work with film crews. So being, being judged as a film crew was like a little bit nervous. Um, going back to early days when you were growing up, councillor stay, uh, if you were to describe that, we have a large American audience. What's a councillor stay? What was it like growing up? Yeah, don't worry about being judged. It's fine. You've got enough cameras here. Fine, that me. Um, yeah, so I grew up uh, on a housing estate, which is, you know, in a cul-de-sac um, down at the end of a road, which is um, probably how the majority of people are actually brought up in, in the UK, you know, uh, working class. Um, and, uh, you know, I had a very outdoor lifestyle. I was born um, near Glasgow, but live on the west coast of Scotland, so down you know, near the sea, just across from Northern Ireland. Um, so my upbringing was, was, as far as I know, fairly standard and normal um, in the UK. Scouts early on, I think, was like in, in the book. So I, I've read, I've got one chapter left of this book. Uh, unbelievable. Like, well done with it. It's amazing. Um, but yeah, early on, it talked about shaping who you were. Scouts was like a massive thing at, at that yeah. point. Uh, again, like 
what what's the scouts like and, and how, how did it shape yourself so um when i was so when i was very young um i joined the uh the beavers which is like beavers cub scouts um like boy scouts in america boy scouts of america but it's all one organization um and it was joining them at very young age which gave me a glimpse into the outdoors and how you can not just survive but thrive outdoors um and so my twin and i spent years before i joined the marines we spent years going away camping hiking learning how to navigate how to live off the land um and so for me the boy scouts were like a fundamental part of of my childhood and growing up and fast forward from there 10 15 years i'm then you know, an elite Royal Marine Commando sniper operating in uh, the Middle East and, you know, using the skills that I learned in the Scouts as a boy. And if you look back to the Scouts, you know, they were formed, Lord Baden-Powell, um, you know, it was military instructors. It was, you know, a way of training people in the way military ways. So did you, as a child then, doing the Scouts early on with, with your twin brother, did you always know that you was going to take the path into the military or was, was there a gap in between something that made you decide? Um, no, so I was not academic um, at all uh, at school. The Scouts helped me get outdoors and stay outdoors. Um, I didn't play computer games. You know, I wasn't, I wasn't an indoor kid. Um, and... The more that you did that, the more that I did that, the more I realised I didn't want to have a normal job. And where I grew up, a lot of people went to work in factories or they went to work in um, local leisure centres and things round about where I was. And that just wasn't going to cut it for me. And so I got to the point where I was looking at what jobs I could do and would want to do in, in the military. It seemed to offer this lifestyle of, of being outside adventurous boys own sort of adventure and that's what I was in the scouts for that's what I was in the cadets for um, and so I went to the careers office up in Glasgow and um, you've got like the navy the air force the army um, and I went into the naval one and, and there was a marine in there a royal marine in there commando and uh, he basically said look there's no point going to the rest of them we're the best uh, so, but I did do my own due diligence and went down and checked the rest of them out. But that was like the first time. And I, I reckon I was 14 when I went there to, to see which one I wanted to join. Um, and then for the next two years, I was like focused. I was joining the Marines regardless of what my parents thought and regardless of what anyone thought. That's exactly what I was going to do. And there's a story of when you, uh, the Green, Green Beret, um, I, can't, I can't remember where it was, but it like, it, the seduction of it brought you in even, yeah, even more to it. The Green Berry, or the Green Beret, you might say in America, the Green Berry is, is like the coveted um, headdress of the Royal Marine Commandos. It's, it's renowned and revered throughout the world. Um, and the first time I actually saw one was, was at a cadet camp, an air cadet camp up in Scotland, North Scotland, and this, helicopter pilot sort of swaggered to the front of the queue that I was in and, and he put it down on the desk he was buying something and I remember just seeing it and just being like that looks beautiful like the black anodized globe and laurel badge on it and the green berry and like I just thought that is that's what I'm going to have 
basically. So what was the process of training like? I mean, f for yourself, was it a bit of a shock or did it, did it meet expectations? I w because I wanted to join the Marines from like 13 or 14, I, by the time it came to joining up, like I knew inside out what training was, what was happening in what week. And the only bit that I didn't know was whether my body would be physically strong enough to complete it. You know, my head was, my head game was good. I, you know, I knew that's what I wanted to do. Um, and it's the longest infantry training in the world. It's 30 odd weeks. Um, so it's quite a long time and it's very intense. You know, the, there's very hardly any days off through the whole process. And every week is, is like a culling phase, you know, getting rid of dead wood in, in the troop. Um, so out of maybe 50 people that join, 50 men that join, um, then at the end of it, there might be seven or eight that finish it. Um, and so joining at 16, your, my bones weren't fully developed and my body wasn't fully developed. I was essentially still a boy. Um, but yeah, it, uh, I found it was tough, but I, I knew that it was going to be tough and I knew that that wouldn't last forever. You know, the, the, there wouldn't be people staying in the Marines for 10, 15, 20 years if it was as hard as it was every single day in training. You just couldn't last that long. So I kind of, it was the first part of my life where I started to realize that you can literally become what you think about. You can, you can, you can have what you want as long as you know what it is that you want. And I think a lot of my friends at school, they just didn't know what they wanted to do. You know, they, you know, they're going to prolong it a bit more, do, do A-levels or hires and then they go to university, still don't really know what they want to do, choose a course that they're not that interested in, come out 23, 24, still not know what they're going to do, dodge around a few jobs. You know, by the time I was 26, I'd done 10 years as an elite soldier. Um, you know, I, and, and that, you know, I just shortcutted that whole 10 years of messing around by knowing exactly what it was that I wanted to do and then breaking that down. And, and that's really, you know, my life up till now has been based on those fundamental points of, you know, you can have anything and be anything and do anything that you want. You just have to know what that thing is. I mean, that is so important as well. And I think it, for some reason, it's not instilled in people. Like, I think we, we can work hard, but work hard towards nothing. And like having a goal, we can get there. And it might not even be the right place you want to arrive at, but you, you will find you get progress. And sometimes looking back, the dots connect as well. Um, you say as a 16-year-old going, you know, into this training with, with men, fully grown men, um, how much of it was physical and how much of it was mental? Yeah, I suppose that, you know, the Royal Marines training is hard physically. You get smashed every day, you know, relentlessly for the entire time that you're there. Um, but as, as a young man, you're fairly robust. You're fairly um, resilient to that sort of training. Um, if your mindset is good, you know, of 50 people that start, let's say 10 finish, not all of those 40 that don't make it have physical injuries. You know, the majority of those probably just don't have the minerals to finish the course. And that's because, you know, there's a big lesson there in, in anything that you do. If the why isn't big enough, then you'll never have the drive, the determination to get out of bed early and, and finish that thing. And so let's say I just say, I'm going to join the Marines. There's nothing else going on. Like my apprenticeship's finished and you get down there and you're in week 10 and you're getting smashed and you're, you know, cold, wet, hungry, tired. Um, 
then it's very easy to just stick your hand up and say, I'm sacking it off. Whereas if that's all you've wanted to do, and that is your end state, is to get there, then like for me, in those hard times, I was in my absolute element. I was living my dream. I, I, like I, it's hard to explain it, but I, I had this like fire inside my stomach that I was doing the thing that I wanted to do. And it, it was such an amazing feeling. And, and I feel lucky that, that I found that early on because it shaped the rest of my life. You know, the, <clears throat> my time in the Marines was 10 years, um, which was quite a short period of time in comparison to lots of other people who might do 22 years as the longest. Um, my twin did 16 years. Um, but, you know, for me, what I took away from that was not all the hardcore skills of being able to shoot from a long distance and being able to run miles and miles and not feel tired. What I took away from it was the soft skills um, and they call it the commando spirit. And that's courage, determination, unselfishness and cheerfulness in the face of adversity. Now, those four things, if you can employ them and put them into everything that you do, then then anything is possible. Like I said earlier, you know, if the why isn't big enough or strong enough, then you'll never get out of bed in the morning. You'll never, you know, get up when things are hard. But with courage, determination, unselfishness, cheerfulness in the face of adversity, which is like the commando spirit, you can almost achieve anything, anything. They should have a lesson in school that's like, you know, once a year, one hour, and then they just, they just go through that. Well, it, it's, you read the Meditations of Marcus Aurelius, yeah. and it's like it's such a stoic philosophy to, to um, be cheerful in the face of adversity. Um, I, yeah, so I mean, Marc, yeah, Marcus Aurelius, like that was a book that shaped, like, shaped you a little bit. Uh, so if you, when most people think back to 2000 years ago, you might think people are running around, living in caves, all the rest of it. But no, you've got Marcus Aurelius, who was a general of the Roman Empire, um, and I think I got that right, general of the Roman Empire, but, but he's written these memoirs, his, his, which were never supposed to be published. Uh, they, were, you know, they were notes to himself, basically, um, meditations. And that is as true today, even more so today than it, than it ever was 2000 years ago. Um, and I only stumbled across it maybe a few years ago, um, not early on, certainly not before I joined the Marines. But what I did find is that his Stoic philosophies were very, uh, and, and the Stoics as a, um, as a group of people, their philosophies were very similar to the way that I was, the way that I acted, and the way that I was already operating and, and sailing my ship. It was really good to read. So we do Mulligan Brothers, but we also have a, a channel that's based on Stoicism. So my brother, William, who's back at the studio, he will, he will do a lot of the stoicism. And it's when I, when I saw that and, and how it linked up with the stuff you'd already been doing, like it, it's such a great conclusion to draw. Yeah. Um, and I think people are now getting a lot out of stoicism because, you know, like you say, it's more, more relevant today. I think so. And there's, I mean, there's some parts of it that, you know, that they just don't work as they do today. Like you can't just say to someone who's gone through horrific trauma on the battlefield, it's man up, bro. Just like get on with it. Just be thankful it wasn't you. You know, like people have people have some serious um, mental health illness because of you know whatever's happened. So so um, there's there's definitely the best parts of stoicism are, are excellent, and then there's definitely like now talking about how you feel is is such a, an important part um, of 
yeah, it's, it's like an addition on to stoicism is that we can openly talk as men, you know, about our feelings and about, you know, that sometimes we're not all right, if that makes sense. Yeah, so uh, another person that I, I just spoke to you before this about Luke Stoltman. So he, he's a strong man, um, one, one of the strongest men in the world. And that's his thing is about opening up and, t and talking about it. And uh, yeah, I mean, linking on to him is um, he was working on the oil rigs, which is a, another industry that's like, you know, renowned for like not sharing your feelings. And um, there's a culture around the oil rigs themselves. I mean, how, what was your experience like working in the rigs? Yeah, so I worked offshore on the oil rigs for three years. Um, so I left the Marines and then I kind of messed around for a little bit. And then and then I went into um, into the offshore industry and there's a lot of hard men and women um you know who work in the offshore oil and gas industry and um it's you know for me for me i used it as a, as a platform to have time off so by this time i've already been to iraq i've already been fighting in war i've already realized that time is more valuable than money i've realized that you know you can earn as much money as you want you know, it comes and goes daily, monthly, weekly, whatever. You know, when you're up, you're eventually going to be back down. Um, but time doesn't. That's just gone. Um, and, you know, if you are privileged enough to get to old age, um, then then that's one of the best things that, that can, you know, physically happen to you. Um, and so, so for me, when I went offshore, it was very much about using, you know, I was sacrificing two weeks of my life, which is huge um, when you think about it. Um, to then have two or three weeks off, which I could then use effectively into reshaping, retraining and, and regrouping on what I valued and what I felt was important and which direction I wanted to go in life. Um, and when you're offshore, it gives you opportunity to reflect because there's a lot of time when you're not working um, and it gives you a lot of time to reflect and to, to plan if if you're of that mindset there's also you could easily blink and you've done 20 years in the offshore industry which means you've spent 10 years on an oil rig uh, which to me was you know it's not what i wanted to do with the rest of my life i wanted to use it as a leg up to then use the time to eventually get the qualifications and the experience that i needed to do the job that i do now and when you look back when i look back like the, the the dots join perfectly. Mm. Like it's it's twenty twenty perfect. It's crazy, right? Look, like looking back, because uh, especially sometimes in the moment it can be quite scary and daunting. Like, is this it? And but it, it it somehow finds its way to work out right. Yeah, I think if you, I think the big one of the big things that I, I think that people are anxious about is fear of the unknown and thinking, is this it? Is this all I've got? Is this what I'm doing with my life? If you're lucky enough to be that. Um, introspective and thinking about yourself and your life because most people are too busy with the minutiae of everyday life that they don't give tomorrow and the next week and the next month a second thought. Um, it's quite deep this, but, but effectively, if you're in that position to think about the future, then you're one of the minority. And then if, if you're able to think about the future and shape it, then, then you're in the top one, two, three percent of people on earth. Um, and that is, is quite a powerful place to be. So yeah, be, like being stuck at a certain point was the door-to-door uh, -door gas, is it gas and energy? Yeah. So I used to do, I, I was a double glazing door knocker. I, it was the worst job I ever had. It was really tough as well. I remember thinking like, this cannot be it. 
So at that moment in time, first, where does the dot connect for you? And yeah. also, what, what was that experience like? That was, well? So I ended up, uh, I was selling gas and electricity. It was a really horrible time. You know, I'd left the Marines. And I didn't leave the Marines because it had ran its course or anything. I left the Marines because I was like at the top of my game. And it's the hardest, the easiest thing to do for me would have been to stay in and see out my 22 years. That was easy. The hard thing to do is leave something when you're very good at it because you, you know, it's completely unknown. It's very easy to stay in that one, in that rut. And I didn't want to be in that rut. You know, I'd, I'd done as much as I thought I could do in the military. I'd gained as much experience. I just knew there was something niggling me that there was something that I wanted to do uh, that was, that was um, I don't know, that there was just something that was niggling at me that made me want to sort of put my notes in and leave. Um, I then had this transition period of coming from being one of the most elite fighting soldiers on the planet to no one, to just not having any backup. You know, I was, I was just this guy who was out in the pot with everyone else looking for work. Um, and so I, I took on this job of being a gas and electricity salesman. And it's, you know, I'm not a salesman. And, and it, it, it just felt like it was a job for the sake of a job. And it, was, it, it wasn't that the people that I was working with weren't that nice. You know, they were, I, I don't know if you found that as well. Yeah, I did, yeah. But they, they, like sales and, and that's, it just didn't sit right with me and they didn't care about the people. And, not at all, yeah. And so I did that for two or three months and I, you know, it was utterly soul destroying. But at that point, I still hadn't connected the dots with, you know, I just decided that I wanted to join the Marines. I decided I wanted to be a sniper. I decided that I wanted to be in recce. I did all these things, but I hadn't really fully grasped that everything was in my control. I kind of felt at that point, I was just like, what am I doing? I'm just getting sort of smashed around here by, by everyone else. Um, and it was that classic, if you don't have a plan, you become part of someone else's. And that's exactly what was happening. I took a big sort of like, you know, I took myself off and had a word with myself um, about what it was and where I was going, which is why in the book I talk about Acres of Diamonds and it's an old fable about, um, you know, everyone's looking outwards and at everything they can go and get and have. And, and actually what I needed to do was look at what I was good at, what skills I had and what I could then offer as a service. Um, you know, to, to, you know, by becoming valuable to people in industry, um, you know, that's, that's the way you become successful. So I, I sort of started to look, what do I know how to do? What can I do? Um, so I dodged around a bit doing the gas and electricity salesman, had a world with myself and then got into doing the ropes. You know, I already had a good background in rope work and that's how I got offshore. And I did three years offshore. The, the fable itself is of a map. Would you explain the fable? Yeah, of Acres yeah. of Diamonds. Yeah. It, um, yeah, I'll hopefully get it right. But it's about a farmer who, um, who's you know, looking to find diamonds. He's got a stretch of land and he's essentially thinks he's exhausted it, sells it, moves on. And the next guy who comes in, you know, digs and just spends hard work, hard graft, and he finds this rich seam of diamonds in his own backyard. And that's essentially what that's about, is that, you know, we, we often look, you know, as a human race, we're looking at what's next and, you know, adventurous spirit and let's go outside, let's go here, let's go there. And we're looking and chasing this thing, which is never there. And, um, and, and essentially what it means is like, for me, was look at what you've got, 
look at what you're good at and how can you turn that into service to then help other people? Yeah, and I think um, one thing we've skipped over is your specialty in, in the military. Um, so, I mean, that, in that industry, that was you being extremely good at what, a certain thing. You wanted the youngest to to reach that that level. Is that right? Yeah. So when I when I was in the Marines, I joined Recce, and then I'd done my sniper course. Um, the Royal Marine sniper course is one of the hardest sniper courses in the world to pass. Um, has lots of different. It's not just about pulling the trigger and or sneaking about. You know, there's so many different um, sections of being a sniper that that make you more of an elite soldier effectively um and so by the time i did that selection past that course i was 20 or 21 so i would have been one of the youngest trained snipers in the you know in the royal marines at that time and that was again it come down to me knowing what i wanted and and instead of waiting five or six years you know until i was ready i thought why don't i just go and do it and if I fail it at least I'll know what I failed on and then I can improve on that and then I can you know and then I'll go back and do it again but I actually passed first time. This will be the last of the military questions um, and it is like what kind of mindset does it take to be a sniper? I think to become a sniper you need to you know there's two parts of it there's all the practical parts which are um, you know, field craft basically, um, and you have to be very good at operating on your own. Um, and then the second part is is more your personality and your personality traits. Are you happy and confident operating on your own? You don't need another 30 guys behind you. Do you have the courage in your own convictions about making decisions? You know, uh, you, what I love about it is the fact that you live by and die by your own sword. It's very easy in a group of people in any walk of life to hide and to blame other people when things go wrong and the shit hits the fan. As a sniper, as if you're working in you or, or your sniper pair, you are effectively responsible for your own life and lots of others and, and you know there's nowhere to hide. And I quite like that stripped bear, you know, this is the nuts and bolts of life and, and this is, you know and it's how I is how I work and operate now. You know, I, I love the fact that I'm responsible for being successful or unsuccessful. Yeah, so I mean, we, yeah, we could talk about the, the military career for a, a, the whole interview, um, but the, the, just going off the book alone, there's so much more to, I mean, your life seems to have got crazier and crazier as it's kind of gone on. Yeah, I, you know, the, the military part of my life is, you know, I, I owe, almost everything to it because it's given me the confidence and the ethos and the courage of my own convictions to to do what I want to do now um, you know it certainly doesn't the military part doesn't mean I'm any better you know at anything than anyone else but I think in my own head and confidence you know I, I know that I passed one of the hardest infantry training in the world at the age of 16 that means you know in my head I have this confidence that you know I can I can do most things, you know, I, I just haven't been taught most of them. Or, you know, if someone teaches me something, then I'm, I'm very focused and dialed on learning that thing. Um, but the thing that made me join the Scouts was adventure. The thing that made me join the Marines was adventure. And then after I left and I started messing around and went offshore, I then started to 
formulate this idea that I would then work in the outdoors. Not as an outdoors instructor, because there's too many people doing that and, and you're very qualified and it's not well paid. And, and also it sort of didn't give me that, you know, I didn't want to be taking groups out on the hill. And, you know, I, I led a lot of expeditions in South America and all over the place with, with young adults. And it just like, I didn't quite know television existed yet, but all these parts were starting to like slot together. I had all my training that was ready. I was like ready for whatever job came my way. Um, I'd spent all that time offshore getting ready for that. Um, had the confidence of my background in the military. So that was all done and dusted. And then someone asked me if I could get a film crew inside an active volcano for a TV program. And I was just like, yes, I can do that. And, and then it just like the penny dropped. I was ready. I didn't know what I was preparing for, but when that job opportunity came along, it then suddenly clicked. Everything clicked into place from scouts right the way through, like over that 15 years to taking that job. And, and it, you know, it, it then looking back on it, it was like, that's what I was preparing for. And again, like I was saying earlier, you know, when you're, when you're too busy with the minutia of everyday life, three kids, you know, your job, 12 hour shifts, blah, blah, like you don't have time to stick your head above the parapet and think about tomorrow. Never mind next week, never mind next year. Um, but that's what the offshore part of it gave me was that time to then work out this plan. And, and so when I eventually got to doing that job in a volcano, it was like, all of this just went doo -doo 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 and into position. And then it, it was just like, fine. So I went to Congo, got a BBC film crew inside one of the most active volcanoes in Africa, biggest lava lake on earth, epic, epic sort of environment to be in. And it used every ounce of my skill set to get the crew in and out safely. And then I sort of came back and had a couple of weeks off and, and just like, I was like, this is amazing. Cause I, I never watched television. And to be honest, it never crossed my mind that television was a, you know, an industry that, that you could work in. Um, and so it just, and it was right at the time when adventure TV was picking up and, and getting busy. And, and so it, with all the preparation and things I was doing, it just, I was perfectly placed at that time to, to get stuck into it. And, and, and I'm not saying that I'm, you know, there are a million people out there better qualified than me in, cave diving, then skydiving, in climbing, and all these things. But, you know, my main focus is more of a, like, step back. I have a jack-of-all-trades basic understanding of these adventurous activities, um, but I also have a more holistic approach to looking after people and crews and making sure that they're safe in these extreme environments. If you're enjoying this episode with Aldo Kane, please consider heading over to mulliganbrothers.com, where you can now get the new journal, and the Inspire Change t-shirts, where all the profits go back into creating this content. Let's jump back into the podcast. What was what was the first experience seeing the finished product? You know, like the shots that the crew had got, like was it, was that, did that mean anything to you once that had um, come out? It did, yeah, it did because, you know, you, you spend three weeks inside an active volcano risking your life to get all of this together and it's all compressed into eight minutes of footage and you just think, how does that, like, how does that even compute? But I've been doing this now for 
13, 14 years. Um, so I understand the process now and I'm much more involved in that process. You know, my job really is, is you know, with you guys, it's with the crew, it's everyone working together to get this end product. Um, and whether that's in jungles or up in the high mountains of the Himalayas or way down in a cave system, you know, where, wherever it is on earth or dealing with narcos in, in the jungles of South America, um, it's the same. It's about can-do attitude and, and looking after people. And, and it, it's, it goes back to what I was thinking about Acres of Diamonds. It's like, what service can I provide someone else, you know, by adding value to someone else or something else? And it's like enlightened self-interest. You know, I get to do all these cool jobs. I get to gob off about it on social media and have cool pictures with cool people in cool places. But really, you know, you're helping other people achieve their goals and achieve their um, ambitions and that, you know, that's quite important. Definitely. And I think, I mean, I'm, this is our thing that we do, but I think film and documentaries and stuff is some, some of the most inspirational stuff for people. It really can like perspective on volcanoes. I, I've not watched the piece personally, but you know, it, it really, really can make a difference. And obviously that's an integral part that you're doing. It just doesn't happen if they haven't got someone who can do what you're doing. Yeah, and uh, so I've, I've worked a lot with investigative journalists. So during the Ebola outbreak in West Africa, um, which I talk about in the book, or chasing down um, tiger traffickers in Southeast Asia or, or doing the narco stuff in South America. Um, and these guys using the medium of, of film and journalism, you know, have have so, you know, they're giving a voice to, for example, tigers that, that don't have a voice, you know, and they're being slaughtered at a rapid rate of knots um, for for luxury goods. So, you know, if you if you can find a way of telling that story and telling it effectively by, you know, film, then, you know, you have much more reach than you do any other way, I think. Mm, no, definitely. I mean, the, you've just mentioned a, a handful of things there. Um, cartel, um, those polar bears, you know, tigers, lions. Uh, it's just crazy. But one of the things you've gravitated towards the end is animal welfare. Like, is, is, and is that something that you're passionate about yourself? Yeah, so with, with the anti-poaching stuff that I've done, so I, I kind of got to the point where I'd done a lot of stuff in the military and... Um, and wanted to give something back in a way that, you know, to, to, for example, animals that don't have that voice and to be able to train anti-poaching units. And um, I was down in South Africa doing that for a while. And um, and the more I was doing that, and I'd been working in television a while, I thought there's, there's opportunity here to tell stories of, you know, of, for example, trafficking. Um, and that's how I got involved with uh, doing the Tiger film. That was a BBC investigation into... Um, tiger trafficking but but it was much more about using my skills again what what can I do with my skills that that provides a service to someone else so um, we were helping the EIA environmental investigation agency with some of their um, operations and investigations so it's yeah, it's about it's about again not what can I get out of this but what can I give and I always find that's a more useful way of approaching situations is what can I do what can I give how can I help um, and eventually that all comes back around to you anyway. So how, do you think it's important that people find that, that purpose, like something that they are working towards that has, you know, like we, we talk about like money or, you know, fame of stuff, but like that, that has that higher purpose as well to them. One of the biggest things that I see from, from military people when they leave is that they, 
struggle because they don't have purpose and passion anymore. When you're in the military, you, do, you have purpose and passion. And I would say 90% of people in the military, certainly speaking from in the Marines, have um, you know th th this passion and, and fire in their belly. Then they leave and then that's gone. And it's a very slippery slope, like you're standing on top of a sand pit there um, and about to end up going, you know, falling down into it and not being able to get your way back out of it because of passion and purpose. Um, and like I said earlier about, you know, if the why isn't big enough, then you don't have the drive, you won't get out of bed in the morning. And that's why when I go to schools and I speak to kids and they're like, I want to be a YouTuber, you know, I want to be famous, I want to be an influencer. And you dig down, you're like, why do you want that? And they don't know. Uh, what are you going to talk about? You can't just be on YouTube, like sat in your bedroom with someone pointing a camera at you. Like, what are you going to, what are you going to talk about? So for me, it's about finding that passion. Um, and whatever your thing is, you know, there's a niche. There's a niche for people who measure screws, you know, on or, or nails. Or you know, like there's a there's a bit for everyone. But you have to know what that passion is. You have to or, or you have to know what that thing is that you want to be interested in. Um, and I think, you know, for me, I've always had a passion for adventure and an adventurous life. And it's always led me to make decisions based on that. Um, so, yeah, I, th I think you're right. People probably would do better by finding what actually floats their boat, not just they want to be famous for whatever reason. Yeah, I mean, at our company, like the biggest thing is to inspire change through film. It doesn't matter that you, being a YouTuber is a byproduct. Like, yeah. it, it, we could be, it could be Facebook or Instagram or whatever. Um, but I think having that end goal or that, that purpose, that, that one thing, the other stuff comes if, if, if it's supposed to come. And if it's not, you're happy anyway because you're doing the right thing. Yeah. Um, one, one of the, th the adventures that was really interesting to me was the row that you did. Yeah. It sounded absolutely brutal. Um, but one of the things I was really interested in is, in the military you spoke about like you're in control a lot and although there was times where you would be, you were being shelled or like, and it felt unfair, but you always had some form of control. But with nature, I got a sense that a lot of the time it's, all, it's merciless, like there is no, sometimes you can't control the outcome. Yeah. How do you accept that? Like what, what are you doing to kind of that's, get through those moments? That's, so for example, on the row, we rode from in a rowing boat from Portugal, mainland Europe, to Venezuela in South America. So like 50 days, 10 hours, 36 minutes, roughly, um, of, of rowing. Two hours on, two hours off, two hours on, two hours off. And that's it for the entire time, all the way through the night, through the day, through the night, you know, for nearly two months. Um, and you are, it's literally you and the elements, that's it live by the sword, die by the sword, you know, like you will, um, you will either get through it or you won't. It's as simple as that. Um, and, you know, when, when you're pitting yourself against the elements, uh, you know, like we never knew that we were going to be able to, we, we wanted to achieve that goal, if that makes sense. Like we knew that we wanted to get across. And, but if that why wasn't, again, big enough, we would have sacked it off. We capsized at night one of our guys nearly got washed overboard. And um, I can tell you being capsized at night in the middle of the Atlantic is one of the most terrifying things that you could ever imagine. Um, and, you know, if the why wasn't big enough at that point, you know, you would have sacked it off. But with all of us, you know, we 
you know, we had this like resolute goal of getting to South America. Um, I, I just wondered how you switched that mindset into, you know, I'm okay with being capsized and like, if a, I don't know how big the waves get, but like if it was big. big, if a huge wave comes and just sinks us, like I'm, you, I don't know if you're ever okay with it, but I don't know how you accept, accept it. Um, everything that I do is balanced um, risk and hazard and, and likelihood, right? You know, when I, when I go inside an active volcano, I know that I could die in there. I know that, but what I do is I mitigate as many of those hazards as possible, you know, wearing hard hats, going in at the right time with the right crew, doing the right thing, not pushing it. Like we mitigate as many of them as possible. But if the volcano decides to erupt in there, then you'll die, right? That's, that's like big boy stakes. Um, you know, that's, that's, you know, what we're setting out to not happen, but you know, you try and make that as clear as possible. And, and the same with the row. The stakes were high, um, you know, a capsize and coming out the boat is death and probably a slow one because you'll be separated and float and eventually drown. Um, so it's, the stakes are high, but it's also testing you, you mentally and physically, testing me mentally and physically, and that's what I enjoy. I enjoy those high stakes, but it's not about taking risks. It's about controlling hazards you know it's about controlling them and controlling the risk of things happening and being as prepared as you can be so that when the you know the curveball hits you you know you eventually you can deal with it or not deal with it however it turns out why why do you continually strive for more like what what's the reasoning for me personally it's it's it's, it's an internal thing of testing myself against the environment and testing my my thought process. You know, I talk a lot on social media about, you know, having a strong mindset, but I am often asking myself, when was the last time I was really tested? When was the last time I really put myself through the ringer? Instead of just talking about being resilient and talking about being, you know, having mental fortitude or having courage or determination, like in the Marines, you would say, don't tell, show. Um, and that, that, that's one thing that lots of leaders and managers don't do is like lead from the front and show people how to do things. Don't tell them how to do things. Um, so for me, that's always been a, you know, I like to test and keep myself current. And also by pitting yourself against the environment, you realize how small and insignificant you are. And I find that truly motivating. Is, is that become a bit difficult, you know, that, like, especially with like, the risk element of it? And then also the, the factor of raising a child, it it's a lot of like very time consuming thing. Yeah. How are you finding time to work, to work, like to do both and um, is it difficult? Yeah, I just had my son Atlas this year. He is eight months old. Um, and I, you know, my lifestyle, the sacrifices that I have, you know, for my job and for my lifestyle meant that I missed his birth. Um, I was in a, on a, a big science research vessel for this James Cameron, BBC Studios Nat Geo project. Um, and I was in the science lab watching my wife give birth to, to Atlas and I missed it. I got home 17 days later. Um, and, and so that, you know, that is the hard part about the job. It's very easy. You'll know from, you know, you can go down a, you can go down a wormhole of social media and think everyone's got a better life than you. And, you know, it's, it's very easy to just see the glossy side that, that people portray there. But, you know, the, the other side, the flip side of a job and my lifestyle is that, you know, home life is can often be chaotic um, and, and bouncing from one job to another and, you know, missing my son's birth. And 
I think when it comes to risk, you know, people might think that I'm a risk taker, um, but I'm not, you know, I'm, I control risk, I control hazards, I control all of these things. So I'm more of a control freak than I am a, um, a risk taker. I'm very cautious. So I don't think my outlook and my, the way that I operate will change at the minute. It's not, you know, I've, you know, since Atlas has been born, I've been diving with sharks, night diving with sharks. I've been diving underneath, um, you know, the, the, the um, sea ice up at 82 degrees north, up in, you know, 400 miles from the North Pole. So, you know, like I've been doing quite a lot of full on risky things since then, but I would rather have that and come home with stories than, than not have them at all. Um, and it's, you know, it's, I don't want to bring Atlas up in a world where he's not going to take risks or understand risks and, and you know, understand the process of decision making. Decision making is one of the biggest things that people can do, even if it's the wrong decision, make a decision, follow it through and it often opens another door that, that wasn't available, you know, before by, by sitting doing your normal stuff every day, you know, to change your life and to change what you're doing, you must change something. If you do the same thing every day, you're not, nothing's going to change. The outcome isn't going to change. Love it. Uh, just talking on, on the, the factor of risk is one of the riskier things I think you spoke about in the book was the cartel work. And, you know, you was at the whim of somebody else's decisions almost. Like, you could put everything right, but, you know, what was that like, the experience working with those guys? So we, yeah, so we worked on a show inside Real Drug Lords, um, and, it, and it was basically three months embedded with different cartels around in South America. And, you know, it was different to, it was different to the sort of work I normally do. Um, and I found, I found it quite hard to, you know, if you go into an active volcano or you're dealing with, I don't know, um, you know, you're on a foot patrol, an anti-poaching foot patrol in, in South Africa somewhere, that like you can deal with those hazards Dealing with with narco traffickers is is very different. You know, you have young young guys with with mega egos, nothing else to lose. Um, trafficking drugs, very dangerous. Very like it's a very um, it's, it's a very very dangerous lifestyle they lead. Um, and to be in and working with them, and you know, for for such a long period of time, was just pretty stressful. I have to say. And you ended up in like genuine situations like so Foxy was interviewing one of the guys and you was there for safety but it was like the there was a, a deal where if you went off question they would shoot you dead. Yeah and so, so Foxy was interviewing a guy and basically the brief was beforehand like you veer away from any of these um, questions then you'll be killed you know and, and it was fairly standard by then that like if they found out we were tracking where we were or anything like that then you know, then they job us. Um, look, super interesting job being being you know given the privilege to to be in there. But you know, like when when I got back from it, I, I was just thinking I don't want to do that again. You know, it's pretty full on. Get me in. I remember when I was inside the volcano, it was erupting. This one time I was in there, it was kind of kicking off, and I remember being scared and thinking, God, what job is next? It was narco's. I'd like get me into Peru or get me into Colombia with Foxy. Like get me out of this volcano. And then I remember being doing the narco job and thinking, I want to be back inside the volcano. <laughs> okay, right. Yeah, and, and there's, more, there's so many more stories, um, which I just advise people to go read the book. 
but you did say there was a lot cut for the book. So, yeah. have you got anything that was that's interesting to hear that was cut out of the book? I mean, I mean, so the the book really lessons from the edge follows my life from you know being a kid all the way through to till now this year, um, and you know to fit that amount of adventure into one one book and keep it as a page turn and keep people interested, like quite a lot of it, you know, it has to to get rid of. Um, and towards the end of the book, I scrape over this expedition series that I was working on and, and I talk about two or three of them um, with Steve Backshaw but um, but that was one of the most intense couple of years because I went from uh, let me think about this I was yeah did that 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 right so I did I went head to head with no I was in Russia with Guy Martin doing like a five-week job there filming came back 12 hours at home flew out to uh, Borneo, went head to head with Ed Stafford over 10 days on his Discovery show, flew back, um, went into the bunker for, sorry, no I didn't, I then flew back, had 12 hours, then went to Mexico cave diving with Steve on his expedition show for four weeks, came back, had 12 hours at home, went inside a nuclear bunker for an experiment on circadian rhythm and mental health, locked in a bunker on my own in the dark, uh, with no contact to the outside world, no phones, no clocks, no tech, nothing, just in a hole in the ground on my own. Ten days, came out, flew to Greenland that night, had another five weeks in the expedition there, flew back, it, like it was, then went to the volcano, yeah, so it was just like this mental year, and I've like crammed it in in the book to like two chapters, but it, it was just an incredibly... What does that months. feel like? Do you, do you like? Does it feel like a blur, or does it really? Does it is it because it's purpose driven? Is it like? Is it distinctive? It's, in each part. No, it's hard. Um, and for example, there I did eleven world firsts in eleven months, right? And they're big. They're like finding the oldest figurative art on, and hand paintings in the world, fifty thousand years old in Borneo, exploring new cave passages in Tulum, diving. Um, cave diving um, that I've never been seen before, paddling two rivers in Suriname in South America that have never been paddled before. Like all of them knew, all of them first time that they'd been documented or, or done. And you just kind of like, they go by in a blur and you, you kind of forget and you don't process. And that's why it was so helpful to me mentally and physically when lockdown happened because I was just like, burning out I was just doing one big job after another big job after another and, and lockdowns with coronavirus happened I was in South Sudan and um, we got called back from there I was there for three weeks got called back from there and straight into lockdown and it was kind of like the first time that I'd taken stock in like two or three years so so it does get hectic um, but it's a freelance world and you know if you're not if you're not working you're worrying about work yeah, I mean, it, it sounds mad and it sounds to be doing first in the world and somehow they pass by you, you know, it's cra like crazy. So um, sad in a way as well, in, yeah. in some ways. And that's why it was such a good thing to write the book, to be able to, to take, you know, lockdown was at least six months of no work for me. So it, it was such a good time to be to, to sit down and focus on what I'd actually been doing and, and to, you know, now my head is much clearer and, and I'm aware, like, for example, we can talk about um, we become what we think about and I've got clear examples of how that's happened. So it's just more a case of reflecting, I think. 
For, for a, a young man who, you know, you've always kind of had a, a vision for purpose, like you've, got so, you've had some goal in mind, what's your advice to somebody who feels that m more lost, you know, like, like the, the other 95% of people? Yeah. Um, yes, good question. So for someone who's lost, and I think, I think most people generally are until they find something that really floats their boat. Like I said, if the why isn't big enough, you won't do it. If someone wants to be famous and a YouTuber, for example, like they have to then go and find this thing that, that then floats the boat to be able to get out and do the, the filming, right? Um, so for someone that was lost, I would say the best thing that you can do is find out what interests you um, and it's find a, a passion. And if you can't even get there, and some people can't change the job because they've got a mortgage and a car and all the stuff that holds us down and three or four kids you know that stuff all becomes a tether and you, you know you can't change too much but what you could do is set yourself a challenge a physical challenge a mental challenge it doesn't have to be big you know it could be going and climbing your nearest mountain in the uk you could do you know snowden or scaffold pike or ben nevis or choose something that interests you and then work towards it so i would say is find a goal break it down write it down and then start being accountable for it um, and I'll tell you another thing that goes with, um, you know, a healthy body and a healthy mind help you achieve these goals. If you're cramming shit into your face every day, then it's going to reflect in your mindset. I'm talking about like bad food, for example, and not exercising. Um, when I was in the bunker for 10 days, the main things that I took away from it was if I'm not exercising and I don't get daylight, every day and I don't interact with humans, then my mental health is tapering off. Um, and so, you know, if you can get outside and exercise with mates every day, that's like one fundamental building block to then helping you achieve your goals out with physical exercise. Um, so yeah, find out what your passion is and then work bloody hard. Process and graft are the two things that people don't see. They look at successful people and think, it's all right for them. But actually what they forget is they've had 12, 15, however many years of just doing the basics and doing the basics well. Yeah, I think, I think that message works the, the other way around. It's like there's a price to be paid for it. Like, yeah. you know, it's not free. Nothing's free and there's no easy way. Everything, you know, if something's easy to get, right? If something's easy to do, it's easy not to do. It's easy to eat an apple a day. It's also easy not to, you know, if something's hard, process and graft like it's much it's also delayed gratification i think we live in an age now where people want instant gratification you know they want something now you know the internet's fast 5g's fast everything's like now 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 you order something online it's here the next day all the same day you know delayed gratification you know you you is, is the art or the discipline of postponing something kicking it down the street a bit so that you have something bigger, better, longer, stronger, whatever that thing is. Um, and that comes down to process and graft. I think a, a lot I hear as well is, you know, it's all right for them. And those successful people have done it without a promise as well. You know, there was, I think we assume that, you know, someone achieves something like standing on stage with an award. It's like they put in the work and they got that, but they weren't promised the result. No. It, you know, you did it, they did it without, any promises i think that's a, a big part of it is also like we talked about finding your passion and there's no promise at the end of it but if you can block out the noise like if i'm sat 
looking at everyone else that does my type of work and looking at them and worrying and social media, I'm not putting in 100% into what I'm doing because I'm paying attention to what they're doing. You'll find that successful people don't care what's happening round about them. They don't care. They're not in competition with anyone potentially other than themselves or they just want to make an exceptional product or offer that service to the masses. And when you start to do that and block out the noise, it's amazing what you can actually achieve um, and controlling the controllables, controlling what you actually have dominion over. It's quite a small thing, but control that. You control your mind. You can control what's in your immediate vicinity, but you can't control the weather. You can't control what other people are doing and you can't control what other people think. So stop trying to. Is there a single biggest thing that got you to this point? Good question. I would say if I was to look at everything and break it down into something very easy, it would be we become what we think about. It's just as simple as that. And if you're not thinking about anything or if you're thinking shit thoughts, then that will be your life. You know, everyone is exactly where they are in life because of the decisions they have or haven't made. Uh, it sounds quite callous because lots of external things can happen to someone, but we always have options. Like people generally, especially where we live, we know we're very privileged where we, we live in the Western world where, you know, we have all of the mod cons. Um, you know, we, we have the privilege of, of making decisions um, and following them through. So, you know, I, I think the biggest, the biggest thing that I can see looking back is that I knew where I wanted, what I wanted to be and what I wanted to do and I just worked hard to get there. So do you believe in like manifestation then? I don't know if you'd use that word, but like um, writing down goals and... Yeah. I don't, you know, I'm not going to be sitting chanting and, and, and doing that sort of stuff, but like it's, it's proven 110%, it's proven 100% um, that, that what you think about becomes your reality. It's like riding a motorbike. I get on a motorbike, I go round a roundabout, I look at a tree, I guarantee you I'm going to hit the tree, right? So the things that you focus on and spend your time on and process and graft, then you'll get there. That's, that's the bottom line. Like there's no magic formula. There's nothing else like what you think about and what, what um, dominates your thought process from when you get up in the morning to when you go to bed will become your reality. And it's not like hocus pocus sort of fairy dust and all the rest of it. It's just simply that, you know, it's like you get a black car whatever brand it is, and then on the same day you see six, eight, ten others because you're, you're dialed into that thing. It's like it's at the front of your mind. So whatever your goal is that you're trying to achieve, it's the same as that. You just, you're just open to more opportunities. And the other thing that's worth mentioning is probably have an open mind. As soon as you go down the route of thinking you know everything, ego, etc., then you're, you're, you know, or building the walls to protect yourself is keeping ideas and things and people out mentally physically emotionally maybe on a mission like what's the biggest obstacle you've faced so far i think the a lot of what i do in extreme environments are analogous to to life um in a way that the biggest obstacles that we stumble across are probably ourselves and what the the one the language that we use and the words that we use to talk ourselves out of things and you'll find that successful people are very good at talking themselves up um, so I think one of the biggest obstacles for, for achieving anything is probably ourselves and that nagging voice that's, that tells you you're not good enough you know certainly when you come from 
you know, I didn't come from a back, bad background, but I came from a background where nothing much is expected of anyone. Um, and it's quite easy to drop back into that, um, into that thought process. So, um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm strict with myself and I'm, I'm forgiving with other people. How, um, you know, with, with that positive talk is like, you know, if I say to somebody, I'm ugly or I don't feel, I don't feel good about my body, you know, nobody's going to be that bothered. But if you start to say, I'm really handsome, I feel great looking, they might jump in and say, well, hold on a sec. There's a fine line yeah. between, so how do, you, how do you balance that fine line? Um, the fine line is ego. Ego in my line of work will get you killed, right? That's the bottom line. Um, and so, again, the old adage of don't, tell people how good you are. Don't tell people what you can and can't do. Show people and do it quietly. Get on with the thing that you want to be doing. Get on with it quietly um, and become very good at it and become exceptional at it. And one day people will think, well, it's all right for him or her because they're lucky because they got there. But, you know, everything, process, graft, knowing what it is that you want to achieve and just putting in the hard yards to get there. The lessons that I've learned in these extreme environments are extreme. Um, and not a lot of people have to go through to do those things, but they're directly transferable into everyday life. Um, one of the biggest anxieties that people have is fear of the unknown or, you know, just, just general anxiety about thinking that everything's falling apart, life's bad, you know, and, and it's, you know, it's very common. Um, I would say the biggest thing that people can do in that situation is to it's probably two things. One is to write everything down that you're worried about that. Off. It makes such a difference to write problems down, physically, pen, paper, and write it down. And when you see that on a piece of paper, it then becomes quite easy or, or working down. This, I feel scared because of this, and then the exercises to then write underneath that, and then this will happen, and then this will, and you work it down to the nth degree, and then I die, or whatever that thing is, right? Um, and then you realize just how, how crazy it is. You know, when you wake up at three o'clock in the morning and your entire life is falling apart and you, that little voice inside your head is just telling you that, you know, that, that everything's a mess and, and worrying about everything, then in the morning it doesn't seem as bad, right? So the biggest thing that you can do with that is control the controllables. It's, it's a simple thing is you can't control all of these other things. And often what's worse is you're making your judgments and opinions on other people's opinions um, you know, which is other people's judgments, which is just mental. Never compare your inside to someone else's outside because that's, everyone's, everyone's different. Um, so I, I think one of the biggest things people can do is, is just to not worry about anyone else. Control what you, you have in your dominion, which is your thoughts, um, and get outside and exercise. It's, it's amazing what that does for you, um, even if, you know, you've never done it in your life before, get outside, you know, go for a walk, do five meters today, 10, 20, 100, five miles, 10 miles. The main biggest thing that people can do is take action because in a year's time, you're gonna wish you started today. So, I mean, we'll just, just first of all, um, with the, the book, where specific, where's the best place to find the book? Um, what, what platforms are you on with it? Uh, what's your, is your audience mix all over the place? Yeah, it's, a, a, it's quite a large uh, American, American, American UK based. UK based. So yeah, I probably think Amazon, Amazon annoyingly yeah. is like the easiest one yeah. to to get it. And is it on Audible as well? Yeah, so yeah. Audible's 
flying up because because it's geezers that listen to so it. I'm, I'm listening to audible it's your your yeah, voice as well it, it's it's dudes that are listening to it and that's the other thing you know men traditionally young men as i'm putting me in the category of being young don't really read a lot yeah um so audiobooks that we had so it's on audible amazon yeah yeah and as i mean a, a large audience um a, consume self-help as well yeah and i know you, you spoke like think can grow rich and you, you read a few of those yourself as, as a youngster but uh i do think there's so many lessons in this book it's not just about tales which there is a, a an amazing amount of stories yeah. in there but there's a lot of lessons to be had as well well the, the, that was my main point i didn't want to sit and write a book that was like aren't i amazing aren't i hard like alpha male bang my chest it, it was like i've done these things how can i help other people going back to what i said and throughout is look at how you can help other people and how you can service other people and and that ultimately comes back round you know to you eventually yeah i, mean, I don't read often and I, I i really i think one of the biggest criticisms on on the reviews is that there's not enough chapters and like and i definitely will re be what like reading through this again i say reading i listen yeah, to yeah. it as well yeah. um social media what's what's the best place to catch yourself uh yeah so i'm Easy at Aldo Kane, A L D O K A N E on Twitter and Instagram. So, uh, uh, like, what, what sort of stuff do you get to, up to on Instagram? Uh, I'm not very good at doing the whole social media thing because I'm ancient. But I'm, I'm kind of like, I just post pictures of where I've been and what I've been doing. So, so we'll get to see where you are in the world. Yeah. So yeah. we just finished working with Will Smith this year, um, and then I've just finished doing a big series with. James Cameron and, and BBC Studios. So there's loads of stuff from from those expeditions on there. Um, I should get round to doing motivational stuff on there, but um, I've kind of left that to the book. Thank you so much to Aldo for doing this with us. If you want to see the main project, head over to Mulligan Brothers YouTube channel where you can see the mini documentary. Aldo has, for a as an understatement, led a pretty crazy life and he has some crazy stories to tell which are extremely entertaining but i'm hoping that you guys listening are also taking the lessons from those stories about facing fears about living on the edge and we were just talking about this yesterday in the studio living on the edge of failure in that risk zone in that uncomfortable place in that living outside of your comfort zone is where success is. That is where the lessons are. That is where you're going to find the most success and the most growth. It is in those moments of hardship and failure and fear where we grow the most. And if we want to be successful, we need to push into those zones. And that's what I try to do every day. It's what I try to advise people to do every day. Do things you don't want to do, whether it's because it's tough or you fear it or it's difficult. Do things every single day that you don't want to do. A great training method for this is jumping into cold water. For me, if you are willing to jump into cold water, even though you don't want to do it, it is more training the mind than it is training the body. Also, please consider heading over to mulliganbrothers.com where you can now get the Not A Journal. Uh, a journal that I created because journaling has got so complicated over the years. And this is the way that I would journal. And I, I could never find a journal like this. It's basically about creating a list every single day, taking souls with that list, 
crossing them off. You know, you've got a note section, it's dateless, so you don't need to buy a new one every time the new year comes around. And also you affirm your goals every single day. It's not about, you know, we see these airy fairy uh, journals at the moment where you have to fill in a, a million sections and it's all super complicated. It does not need to be that way. We need to know what we are working towards every single day. So we have a weekly, a monthly and a yearly goal, which we reaffirm every single day. This allows the ability to change those goals and be flexible to those goals. Every single day, you then work towards your weekly goal with a list for the day. So you know your daily goals. And it is that simple. This is how you achieve success. You break, you have a yearly goal, a 10-year goal, a 20-year goal, and you break it down into years, into months, into weeks, into days, into hours. This book is a basic breakdown of all those things. And I'm so excited with the feedback we received. I didn't know how this would be taken. I didn't know if people would think it's too simple. But this has been such a success that we cannot thank you enough. The journal will be sold out by Christmas. However, we will be restocking after the new year. Um, it just may take a while, but thank you for all the support. And as always, guys, so you guys are aware, our commitment to this is every single penny that we profit on these books goes back into making this content. We would not be able to film these projects with our cameras, with our crew, if it wasn't for the support that you guys have given us at mulliganbrothers.com. We do not take that for granted. Please, please, please understand that we know the privilege that you guys have blessed upon us to help inspire change around the world. And we will not let go of that. We will not let that slip. We will not take that for granted. Every single moment of our lives, everything that we do is about inspiring change. Whether it's through our films, our podcasts, our actions, everything that we do is geared towards inspiring change. So thank you. We, we understand that you have blessed us with the ability to fulfill our purpose in life. And we will do that to the day we die. And yeah, I cannot thank you guys enough. I'm going to stop gushing. Go follow me on Instagram if you want to see what I get up to on a day-to-day -day basis. And also consider picking up Life from the Edge, the, the book that Aldo wrote. It is a really good read. I'm not just saying that. I read this book before doing the interview and I cannot recommend it enough. Um, it's a fantastic book. Have a blessed and productive day. And more importantly, go inspire some change, guys. I'll see you in the next one. Peace.